Welcome to How We Raised It, the extraordinary stories of mega gifts and multi-million dollar philanthropic campaigns from the Australian arts leaders who delivered them. I'm your host, Melissa Smith, and this series is commissioned by Creative Partnerships Australia and Noble Ambition. On today's episode, we have Patrick McIntyre, formerly Executive Director at Sydney Theatre Company, now CEO of the National Film and Sound Archive. Patrick was at Sydney Theatre Company for 11 years as Executive Director and before that General Manager. Prior to that, he worked as Associate Executive Director at the Australian Ballet from 2003 to 2010. It took both one year and 30 for Sydney Theatre Company to achieve Australia's largest gift of performing arts and one of the world's most coveted performing arts theatres. And the story involved some of the most celebrated stars of Hollywood, Australian boardrooms and prominent families. Kate Blanchett, David Gonski, the Packer family and a shower curtain. This is the story of Sydney Theatre Company's $30 million campaign. Thanks for joining me, Patrick. You have had an extraordinary career to date in arts management and all things performing arts in Australia. I want to begin delving back, though, where it all started. I understand you grew up in Armadale, quite a way away from the the great lights of the theatre. Tell me about that young man growing up in regional Australia. What did he actually want to do? Did he ever imagine he'd be here today? I certainly didn't think I would be here today. And I don't even think that I knew that jobs like this existed in country towns and probably in the city when I was growing up. And my experience with the arts was really I'm the youngest of five kids. And so for me, theatre was going to see my older siblings in school plays or being in them myself. And even that was exciting, turning up, being part of the audience, seeing people on stage, having the story told through that medium was exciting, even like that. And so, you know, I couldn't wait to move to the city and be closer to theatres. So as you move to the city, and we'll jump ahead past university at UTS and various arts management roles, I want to take us to the Australian Ballet. You spent seven years there as Associate Executive Director. And in that time, you must have learned and seen so much across the company as a whole. But I'm interested in philanthropy. The Australian Ballet has an extraordinary culture of philanthropy. What did you learn during your time there about the culture of philanthropy and the important role leadership plays? Tell me a little bit about what that actually meant in terms of a culture of philanthropy when you're in the ballet. How would you know it existed? It has to permeate all levels of the business now. Everyone has to be aware of donors and servicing donors and delighting donors and including donors. And in particular, it's become a CEO level role. So it's not just a chief fundraiser has a a posse of donors who he hangs out with or she hangs out with. It really over time has become a CEO level issue and a board level issue. So yeah, I think 10 or 15 years ago, donations and philanthropy were great things to have and they enabled you to do a bit extra maybe, whereas now they're sort of coded into your core revenue if you're a major performing arts company in, in, in Australia and in the US, obviously. And so once it becomes a key piece of annual revenue, then it becomes a CEO level problem. You've got to deliver that year after year. And so that means that 
you don't just pop into a drinks thing that the philanthropy director is having that night. All points of the organization are aware of how to open up to donors and how to provide an experience to donors. Organizational culture and procedures had to wrap around the needs of philanthropy and philanthropists. So taking all that experience in 2013, you then took the role as general manager of Sydney Theatre Company, which was an extraordinary time of leadership. Kate Blanchett and Andrew Upton just renewed as co-artistic directors. And David Gonski later that year took over as chair of STC from Ian Darling. There was extraordinary star power and board power at the ready. How did you find it when you first started STC with all that experience at the Australian Ballet? How did you find philanthropy at STC at the time? Well, I was super lucky at Sydney Theatre Company because Danielle Hybrink was already in place. She is an extraordinary professional and an extraordinary fundraiser. STC at that point was, you know, it was a few years behind the ballet in terms of philanthropy becoming a, a CEO level concern. From my experience at the ballet and being aware of how things were done overseas, I took that to Sydney Theatre Company. And so we were able to kind of start pushing towards shifting the culture around fundraising. Tell me a little bit about the Kate effect. There was much spoken at the time about the effect Kate Blanchett had on the financial and artistic program of STC. Many people think if only we had somebody like that, then the funds would come flowing in. Was that actually the case at STC? Well, yes and no. It certainly wasn't the case that Kate and Andrew arrived and money started flooding in the door. Naturally, if you're having a gala fundraiser, and Kate Blanchett's going to be there. Everyone wants to be there. <laughs> yes. But you can get an opposite problem with that, which is the sense that if Kate and Andrew weren't there, it was a B function. I mean, everyone wants to be in the same room as the artistic director, but when the artistic director is also you know, a star of Kate's level, it's very difficult to get around the sense of deflation or disappointment if Kate wasn't there in a way that wouldn't have been a problem if she had been a different kind of artistic director. So it kind of set up this kind of two-speed thing where some things like gala dinners were amazing, but we still had to do a huge amount of work at the bottom end of the pyramid. Having a famous and exciting artistic director was very motivating for ticket buyers who wanted to experience her unbelievable talent live on stage, but it didn't really do much to shift the dial on lower-level donors or new donors who hadn't made a gift to the company before. But tell me about the role of leadership has played not only an important role in terms of your artistic directorship, but in terms of your chair at the time, David Gonski. I'm interested in a gift that he made with Simon Mordant, which perhaps reflects what you were just speaking about, the $500,000 gift that both he and Simon Mordant gave to support the adaptation of Kate Granville's The Secret River at STC. Why was that gift so important at that time? Well, it emerged from similar thinking to what I was just talking about, which is encouraging people to give to the core work of the company. So I just described how we changed our campaigning messaging more around the core work of the company. And David Gonski, who obviously is one of the country's most experienced cultural leaders, but also one of the country's most experienced fundraisers, he was totally on board with that plan. And, and I think by inviting David and Orly, inviting Simon and Catriona to join them, in jointly making that investment in such a signature show, they were very, very, very self-consciously saying to the community at large, it is possible to give hundreds of thousands of dollars 
to make a show. And in visual art, people will donate large amounts of money to acquire an artwork for a museum. And I think what they were saying was, if you want to do visionary work and work of scale and work like the Secret River that took some years to develop, there is a role for patronage there as well. And I think, again, that just set up a kind of a people who are used to giving to collecting institutions. It was a bit of a click point for them to go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That is a major work of art. And of course, that also would require patronage and support. So that was very, very well-timed gift. And what David's hunch in that moment gave us was a new kind of category of major giver, which was the production patron. And a production is a journey that people can participate in. So a production partner, this is where they would get to meet the director over lunch, for example, and find out more about the show. Or they might get to bring some friends in after rehearsal to meet the actors in an informal environment and have a drink. And then, of course, they bring guests to the opening night and they help make this show happen. It was a really great turning point. The story is really about you love this company, you want this company to succeed, help us to keep the company going. That's a wonderful example of a programmatic support. I want to shift now into specifically SDC Wharf Revitalization Campaign. Now, it's a story of great ambition and impact, and it ultimately raised $30 million through philanthropy, including at the time a $15 million gift, which was the largest for a performing arts company, and a further $30 million of investment from New South Wales government. But before we get into the details of how you did that, I'm interested to know just how bad it was. Why did you need that campaign? What was wrong with the wharf? So for people who haven't visited Sydney Theatre Company at the wharf, it's two venues, rehearsal rooms, workshops, wardrobe department, restaurant and bar, and our administration offices all in a reconditioned 100-year-old timber shipping wharf that sticks into Sydney Harbour. The company was located down here in the early 1980s, and we were the first anchor tenant in this little crescent of Sydney Harbour that was redundant and kind of, you know, mouldering away maritime infrastructure. Not much had happened at Sydney Theatre Company since the 1980s when it was moved down to the wharf, other than, you know, desks were added and partitions were added. But it was essentially, you know, any heavily trafficked public building after 30 years is totally at the end of its life. And a lot of them are torn down and rebuilt. Because of the wharf, you can't do that because it's so stunning. You can't build a new wing on it. We knew we had to do something because the dressing rooms were basically makeup tables with shower curtains around them <laughs> and you know, one shower with cracked tiles, two staff working in a little alcove that was actually built to hold the photocopier and the photocopier was now just shoved <laughs> under the stairs. You know, the company had grown so much since 1985. So the first message was need. End of life had to be replaced. Then the second thing is, given that we have to do this, and it is such a stunning facility, what can we do that gives artists and audiences new experiences on the wharf? So it was one of those moments, even around the board table, where people said, this is the idea to dream big. If we're going to need to raise a lot of money, let's go big. We had one chance at this to raise the money and to, and to realise the project. So that's that the board totally signed up for that. We had a group of donors called the Chairman's Council. They agreed that their contribution in one year would go towards us commissioning Hassel Architects to start working on a master plan. And after we had the master plan and an indicative budget, that was the starting pistol moment where we had something to sell and a sense of how much we had to get. So you had an extraordinary vision, a $60 million gap in the budget, probably a few sleepless nights. What's that first step that you took to embark upon raising $60 million? So we knew that with a capital campaign, 
we had to have the quiet phase, we had to have the anchor gifts, all that kind of stuff. And we knew that there were a number of families who were the most logical families to approach for the lead gift because they were already extremely close to the company. And so that was the first thing. It's like, who do we approach first? It's kind of an honor, really, to be approached first, I think. And, and this is something that people who aren't fundraisers take a long time to get in their heads, that sometimes I think that asking for money is embarrassing or an affront. But I think to approach someone to lead something like Transforming the Wharf is, is kind of an honor. And you approach people in that way of saying, you love this company and this is a way for you to make a really lasting and transformative change to the company and we'd love to do it with you. That was the first part of it. Then we knew that there would be a group of people who would cluster around that lead giver. Then we also knew at some point, because the wharf is owned by the state government, that at such a massive investment of capital into a state-owned asset was going to have to attract some co-investment from the state as well. And so <laughs> then it's that kind of dance that people get into of raise a bit privately and then you go to the government and see if they'll match that bit or you know, you've, you've got to work out how to, how to get that dance happening. We knew that a couple of years before Simon Mordant had made that extraordinary gift to the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney. And I think that was such a watershed moment for cultural philanthropy because I think what Simon was saying, enough of the dance of the government and the private, like, you know, they'd been talking for so long about what they're going to do with the MCA and who is going to invest what. And I think at the end, Simon, as a private individual, said, here's $15 million, make your mind up. Are you going to help us or not? Because this is, this is private investment here. Let's do it. And it really unlocked that blog jam. We had this $15 million benchmark in our head. And so I think the industry collaboratively has been helping to lift all boats. I think the Primrose Potter Australian Ballet Centre was a major gift before Simon at the MCA, and that, that helped articulate another jump. And so we knew that we set out to, to attract the largest gift to a performing arts company in the country. And we sort of had the MCA $15 million gift in our sights because we thought if we didn't get that, it was actually going to depress future capital raisings for performing arts. So we, we, we had that in our heads as a target. It's interesting that that benchmark that Simon Mordant's gift made and now your gift has made for performing arts and for future ones we'll be making. Talk us through that $15 million was that cornerstone gift that you were after. Not to give too much away, but it was the Packer family and the Crown Resorts Foundation that made that gift. How did you make that approach? How much time did it take to secure that gift? Well, the answer to that is maybe one year and also maybe 30 years. <laughs> so Rosalind Packer has been an extraordinarily generous individual giver to a range of arts and health and other charities across decades and Sydney Theatre Company in particular since the very beginning. And we also had this marvellous intergenerational moment as well, because through Ros's support of the company, Gradle Packer had become a great supporter of the company. And Gradle was a trustee on the Sydney Theatre Company Foundation and also then became a board member. So here we had two generations of one family who were contributing in all sorts of ways to the company. As one of the city's kind of leading 
families and certainly a family not only with the potential to give but also with a with a really impressive giving track record we really wanted to start the conversation there it's one of the the real tricks of fundraising as distinct to say corporate sponsorship is that philanthropy is personal relationships and it really comes down to trust and respect and also do you kind of like each other like you know are you enjoying each other's company and and do you really feel like you have each other's best interests yeah. we certainly felt that way with Ros and Gretel so we started the conversation there and Gretel obviously had already been attached to the company on the foundation and the board so we spoke to her for a long time about how she would feel about it if she thought it was appropriate and how we might go about making that ask to her family just aware that listeners might be thinking oh well it sounds quite easy because you already had Gretel on the board but i think this is the other thing about the culture of philanthropy and the structures of philanthropy is that your most generous donors are likely to be people who are already connected to your company because they are connected to your company one of the evolutions in the australian arts industry that is still maturing actually is a step towards you know what is sometimes called the american model which is having 40 people on your board all of whom are expected to give we're not there i don't think we should even go there because i think that brings with it some shortcomings but i think as you build the culture of your organization at all levels staff donors customers and board members you really need to be looking to build a community of support around the company and so it's not surprising that your most generous donors are typically people who are already connected to the organization. I actually want to respond to that. That's a really important point because I think some people resist the American model because there's perception that it undermines diversity. Diversity is incredibly important for our boards here in Australia, particularly in the not-for-profit sector. But what I'm curious to know is how can we build a culture of philanthropy whilst maintaining diversity? You gave me a great story earlier about the role of your chair in Narev. Could you share us a little bit about some of those conversations that you had with him in terms of his role in the campaign? We secured the leadership gifts while David Gonski was chair, and then Ian Narev, who was on the board at the time, became chair of the company. And we're kicking into the second phase of you know, a more public phase of the capital raising. There are a lot of people who were ready; they knew they were going to be asked to give a gift, but people still hang back a bit and say, "What is the board doing?" So at a certain point. and this definitely is a factor in the american fundraising model with boards is that people are waiting to see what the chairman will give or if they look at your board list and they go well that person has 20 million dollars more than me and that person has 30 million dollars less than me people tend to know this information at a, at a certain level of wealth people are looking for anchor points people don't want to give too much in case it looks kind of gauche and attention seeking but also they don't want to give too little in case it looks kind of mean and so there is this kind of at a certain point they looked to the board for leadership and we knew that Ian as chair would make a gift to the campaign but we also had to get the decision from him and understand what the size of that gift would be literally a trigger to another number of gifts almost immediately and you know that is a weird conversation to have as a ceo that's not something that your fundraising director can really do and that really does come down to having a great relationship between the ceo and the chair where you can actually talk about these things you know as it happens Ian is a very straightforward guy and so we were able to have that conversation and he and his family conferred and made a gift and it did set off a series of gifts at an appropriate level these things you can't wait for these things to happen and i think 10 years ago the chair wasn't expected to do this people are now coming on to boards more consciously knowing 
that if not giving, then helping the getting is, is certainly part of the remit of a director. Absolutely. It's a demonstration of great leadership. If you could take me back to the dance for a moment, that specific moment when you realized that $15 million had been asked for and that you had secured it, what was that moment like? Where were you when you found out that the Packers were going to give $15 million to SDC? I was in the dining room of my house and David Gonski rang. So they're very rarely one person asking another one person. <laughs> there are numerous people talking to different people at various points in time. And, you know, with David Gonski being the chair at the time, it was most appropriate that ultimately it was David finalizing the ask and getting that confirmation. It was really exciting because I think by that stage, we'd talked about it amongst ourselves so much and, and including with the family that we knew we were heading in that direction. The really exciting thing about it was that it was definitely a green light for the whole project and, and everyone yeah. felt that, including Gretel. I think she was possibly more thrilled and excited than all of us because she knew that this decision on behalf of the family had made the whole Wharf project possible and they totally deserve that credit. And I also knew it wasn't just the 15. I also knew that that 15 was the unlock to the rest of the campaign. I didn't know where the rest of the money was coming from, but I knew that once that really significant first step had been taken, I then knew how the rest of the campaign would follow on. Really, it was a very exciting moment. But when you talk about the unlocking and what comes next, you spoke about the second stage. Ultimately, it was about 13 people that came together to make up that $30 million, of which almost half of them were either on your board or were formally connected to your board. How did much time from getting the significant $15 million gift from the Packers to the final parts, how long did that take? I think that was relatively quick. I feel like that was maybe another 12 months. The $15 million gift was really the kind of starting pistol on a lot of conversations that were poised and ready to go. So there were a lot of presentations of the master plan of what we wanted to achieve that helped get people more excited and more enthused about the project. And also, of course, once you've got your starting gift, every subsequent donor knows the project is going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the initial givers are taking a big leap into the blue because you don't know at that point if all of the money will be raised. But once you've got a leadership gift of that magnitude, particularly in proportion to the total requirements of the project, I think people then were like, okay, this is definitely happening. I'm going to jump in now. So you had another key player, though, the New South Wales government. How did you manage both the philanthropy components and then the government? How did those negotiations take place in the sequencing? It was a bit of a leapfrog. As a board, we're not going to go to the government and say, this is your building, fork over the cash. We're an independent business that leases the building. So A, out of our own self-respect, we knew that we want to, we want to be self-reliant. It's, it's, it's our business. It's our facility really inside the, the government's building. And so we wanted to have a stake in it. And we were very, very comfortable with the idea that we would be raising private money. And we knew that it was also inevitable to be raising private money because at that point, the Sydney Modern Project was on the drawing boards. So was the refurbishment of Pier 23, which is right next door to Pier 45, which is where Sydney Theatre Company is which is about to be opened as the home of Australian Chamber Orchestra, Bell Shakespeare Company and Australian Theatre for Young People. And simultaneously, slightly behind, but kind of catching up with us, Sydney Dance Company, Bangara Dance Theatre and the Sydney Philharmonia Choirs were also due to be refurbished. All this infrastructure just happened to be happening at the same time. 
plus the Australian Museum, plus the powerhouse. So we knew that the cultural infrastructure investment happening in Sydney at that point and in the state at that point was enormous. So we knew that private money was definitely going to be super critical in making all that work happen. It was back in the days where people used to talk about poles and wires a lot. So the state government had sold off a component of the energy network and that was in the interests of making big infrastructure investments into the city and the state. It was really exciting at that point that the, that the state government was including cultural infrastructure in the idea of infrastructure. And so we knew equally we weren't going to lump the whole ask at the feet of the government, but we knew that there was an interest in cultural infrastructure at that point, notwithstanding a lot of competition for it. Mm. And so we decided that what we wanted to do, we had a a valuation of the master plan at around $60 million. And we said, well, what if we go to government saying we'll raise 30 if you contribute 30? That's a kind of a dollar for dollar investment. And to our knowledge, that hadn't been presented to the state government before. And a lot of these cultural infrastructure projects I've referred to are contingent on private contributions, but certainly not 50-50. And we just thought that would be a super appealing ask that would make us look plucky and self-reliant and also deliver exceptional value for taxpayers. With government, there are all kinds of conversations you need to have at the bureaucratic level, at the political level. You know, Even that is a kind of an iterative conversation between the different branches of government. And ultimately, you'll be talking to people in Treasury and consulting to advisors to the Premier and all that kind of stuff as well. So all of those conversations were set off. I think possibly there was some scepticism that we would be able to do a dollar for dollar match the way we had proposed. But I think, again, you know, once the Packer family had made their gift, that was a real signal that the project was going to happen and we we're going to make that milestone. And this was an opportunity for co-investment that would realise for New South Wales one of the most distinctive and gorgeous theatre facilities anywhere in the world. It certainly is gorgeous. That scepticism I want to pick up on for a moment. There are so many moving parts, so many different pieces of ambitions and relationships to be managed. Were there moments that you doubted this was possible? I think I felt confident overall, but I think on a daily basis, you know, I can be plunged into despair thinking, oh my God, this is never going to happen. So I kind of oscillate on that. I think, (laughs) I think I might be optimistic in the long range arc and a bit more stressed in the day to day kind of tactics of that. But I think everyone was feeling trepidation. I feel like we've all done each other a favor in a way by everyone simultaneously having capital asks. And I think this is where a lot of the skepticism was not just at Sydney Theatre Company, but generally everyone was like, oh, there's no way we're all going to be able to get those sorts of donations to fund all this capital. Like that's never been done before. And it has happened. And it's happened because we asked. (laughs) It has happened because you asked. I think sometimes people, you don't ask, you don't get. And I think that once the $15 million gifts come and the $5 million gifts come, people go, oh, if they can do that, I can do that. And so I think actually this cluster of capital appeals that seemed like they were going to cancel each other out and be doomed to failure, I think they all actually stimulated and escalated each other. And I think that's a real learning, actually, for the philanthropy sector in Australia. Okay, we can make those big, bold, confident asks. People are listening and they are receptive. Also, why not make the ask? All they can do is say no. At least you have the opportunity to have the conversation about why you think there would have been value in that ask. 
I think psychologically also the capital nature of it could have helped unlock that giving. I think performing arts is very ephemeral. There are no assets created. Like you're not buying a painting for the art gallery that's valued at one million now and will be valued at five million in three years. Shows once they're finished, they're off stage and gone. So I think the fact that we that the art sector had bricks and mortar asks that was a different psychological proposition. I think certainly to vault the idea of a of a major gift being $250,000 to being $15 million. And I think now that psychologically that adjustment has happened in people's minds by virtue of it being a capital gift, I think that watermark will stay. And I think we're now better at communicating organisations like Sydney Theatre Company, not as a collection of shows which are on stage and then they disappear, but as permanent cultural infrastructure, as institutions that serve the city year after year after year. I think the nature of capital has led us to discuss our companies in arcs of 30 years at a time and not just next year's program. I think that's a beautiful summary of what you've been able to do. I'd like to come back to the tail end of this campaign. You managed to negotiate and dance with the New South Wales government. You managed to secure 15 million. You managed to navigate the dances with various other donors, a total of 13 families, to secure a further 30 million in philanthropy. You're just about to unveil the new wharf. You're on the brink of all the launch parties and various other things and celebrations, and then COVID hits. How did that make you feel? What role did philanthropy play during COVID for you guys this past year? It's a very interesting question, and and in some ways COVID has been very positive for us because of what we've learned about our relationship with donors and ticket buyers, actually. There's that saying, you don't know what you've got till it's gone, and I think when COVID hit, People close to Sydney Theatre Company's response wasn't, oh my God, times are tough. I'd better, I'd better hunker down myself. The relationships that we've built up over years with donors and ticket buyers really paid off in that moment. To come back to the capital campaign, it was initially we thought we were really sunk because we did have a whole phase of the capital campaign planned, which would be the more public facing part of the campaign. So for example, raising $5,000 per seat in the theatre so people can have their name on a plaque in the theatre. The Sydney Theatre Company's fundraising team, philanthropy team, pivoted so sharply from achieving an uplift of $2 million to our annual fundraising targets from the public phase of the capital campaign to raising that $2 million through a Save the Company disaster appeal instead It was extraordinary. And this is one of the great things about philanthropy in the life of a company, any company. And we say this to donors all the time. And it's honestly true. It's not just the dollars. It's the fact that people care. And so every dollar that was donated to us through that crisis campaign is actually just gives us such reassurance that the institution really is valued in the community. We've noticed it as well with, you know, years and years ago, if you asked the cast of a show to come to a fundraising drinks thing after a show or after rehearsal, people would be like, why would they do that? And, you know, but actually our artists who come are so blown away by the interest and the respect and the kind of sense of excitement and privilege about being in those environments and getting to talk directly to the artists, that the artists themselves find that, as we do, really gratifying and really interesting, and it really kind of puts a spring in your step. One of the things we did during the the COVID campaign was one of the ways that people could support the company was to donate the value of tickets to cancelled shows rather than take the refund. 
for the council ticket. And one of the things that Danielle jumped onto was this idea of let's hire, as a way of employing artists during that time, we hired actors who'd lost their gigs because the theatres were shut to become a thank you phone room. And so we had some of our best loved actors ringing people in their homes and saying, oh, look, I just wanted to say I'm an actor and I just really personally appreciate on behalf of the company and on behalf of myself the fact that you donated your ticket. And people were so blown away by the reciprocity of they love the artists and having an artist on the phone saying they value them. Is, That's is it, very special. It's very special. And we discovered that a lot of people, after getting a phone call from an actor like that, would then contribute cash. <laughs> it's very clever. So I think what is fundamentally inspiring and humbling about philanthropy, and that is what gives you the energy and sustains you, particularly in those darker times during a campaign when you just don't know day to day if it's going to be possible and that you can celebrate collectively. I want to know, after all these opening nights and performances post-COVID, when we finally have them again, raising that money for the Wharf campaign, what has been the impact for you personally? I've never been particularly motivated by capital projects. I'm really interested in, in making shows and getting those shows out to audiences, really. So the building project to me was, to be honest, a colossal distraction that I really was not that fussed about. However, <laughs> in the historical point that the company was in, it's like past the parcel. I was in the chair where I had to say, do you know what? The capital needs of the company are strategically critical. We have to do this right now. So I was kind of an unwilling capital project person. <laughs> I mean, the risk involved in that was extraordinary. If we'd got it wrong, it would have been a disaster. And so I think what I'm most proud of actually is that we did some things that are quite unusual. We really approached the project from an artist, but also from an audience experience up. We really investigated things. We've got things built here that, that don't exist elsewhere. Ultimately, so proud that we went on a very heavy consultation basis and we were able to invent solutions that really suit, you know, this community of artists, this audience and this city. The power of asking in getting the most extraordinary brief delivered and, and built and, and raising all that money. Can I ask you, as, as you embark on this new adventure as CEO of the National Film and Sound Archive, looking back on your time as Sydney Theatre Company in philanthropy, would there be anything that you would have done differently? No, I don't think so. I feel like our evolution as an institution over the 11 years I've been here has in some ways been a miraculous confluence of technical expertise on behalf of the management team and the philanthropy team and just a wonderful community of individuals clustering around the company at that time. Patrick, thank you so much for your time today. But most importantly, thank you for your extraordinary leadership in the arts and in philanthropy. By asking and pushing and never giving up, you have created something utterly extraordinary and have inspired many others. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much. That's, that's great to hear. It's actually been a great joy uh, as well as, you know, I have more grey hairs and less hair generally than I did at the <laughs> beginning. But I think in the nonprofit sector, you know, we do it because we love the thing. You know, we're in yeah. service of the thing, of the cause. And so all of the trials and tribulations and sleepless nights and everything, they're in service of something that you love and that that is the reward that those of us in the nonprofit sector are really lucky to have hardwired into our jobs. Um, but thank you for saying that. 
My pleasure. Your story will inspire others. It already has inspired me and many others I know. So thank you, Patrick. Thank you. What a fabulous story and extraordinary leadership from Patrick. Now, my three key learnings from this story are one, when Patrick said it took 30 years and one to secure the $15 million gift from the Packer family. This is a great story of building relationships that span generations from Ros Packer to Gretel Packer and engaging them in the life of the company, both formally, informally, engaging their skill sets and experience as well as their financial support. So for example, Gretel Packer is currently a member of the Sydney Theatre Company board and a chair of the foundation. So that's number one. Two, the role of the board, specifically the chair, was critical. Not only when Patrick spoke about David Gonski's role in you know, negotiating that big gift with the Packer family, but also Sydney Theatre's current chair, Ian Narev, and his family giving a $1 million gift to the campaign. Patrick was able to have a really delicate but incredibly important conversation with Ian about the role of chair in giving and the impact his giving would have on the campaign. My third key learning from this story is the pandemic has been devastating for the arts, very specifically in this instance in terms of rolling out the public stage of their campaign. Now, the company moved incredibly quickly, not only to shift the arts, but how they use their actors to make calls to donors to say thank you. This was an authentically Sydney Theatre Company approach to stewardship that would have been so powerful with its donors. So my recommendations to apply in your organisation are one, highly successful fundraising companies have sophisticated and long-term commitment to philanthropy and its relationships with donors. Two, a strong relationship between CEO and chair is essential in leading complex campaigns, high-profile, high-stakes campaigns, as is the ability to have very open and trusted communication between chair and CEO. And third recommendation is be agile, creative, and authentic in running campaigns and engaging with donors is fundamentally important to your success. Thanks for listening to How We Raised It. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leaving a review helps others find the podcast. For more resources and arts philanthropy know-how, head to creativepartnerships.gov.au. For more on fundraising leadership, go to nobleambition.com.au.